I think a materialist approach to things is very, very consistent with uh, my experience in Christian social justice. I feel like the, the deeper I get into anarchist practice, the deeper my faith is getting at the same time. I would hope that you know, securing means of life for all would be something all people of faith would say, oh yes, that's at the basis of what we believe. Those who are most marginalized know the most about the truth, good and the beautiful. To me, it's less that I think building class solidarity is a bad thing, as much as it seems like if you don't attend to things like anti-black racism, um, that's always going to get in the way of building class solidarity, actually. And when you go back, you find that a lot of uh, revolutionary grassroots participatory movements, the, the precursors to what you could call um, the barrio assemblies and these like, you know, grassroots neighborhood organizations, a lot of these were sponsored by the church. What does it mean to say that the Christian tradition is internally contradictory and there are antagonisms there? Um, you're always uh, being faithful to some aspects and betraying other aspects. Welcome to The Magnificast, a podcast about Christianity and leftist politics. I am Dean Detloff, and I am your quarantine Connolly fan. And I'm Matt Bernico. I wish I was living in Ireland, not on Tom Nook's <laughs> Hell Island. I'm still playing Animal Crossing, and I'm not going to stop. <laughs> uh, yeah, well, uh, until you uh, defeat Tom Nook, why would you? Um, yeah, we are here this week with Brett O'Shea of Revolutionary Left Radio and Red Menace, another great podcast, and also a bunch of other stuff. He just is everywhere, it seems. Uh, you'll learn more about that shortly. But uh, an old friend of the show, all the way back to the beginning of the show, uh, somebody whose podcast kind of started around the same time as us and um, has just done a lot of really amazing work and lots of really fun episodes that we like to listen to. And we always kind of are looking for excuses to talk to those old friends. So we're glad to talk to Brett this week about James Connolly. James Connolly is a figure in the Irish left, but also the U.S. left. He helped found the IWW with Father Thomas J. Haggerty, you might have remembered from many episodes ago, uh, but really happy to have Brett back on the show. Yeah, it's a great episode. We get to hear some um, very wholesome content about Brett's early life, and I love it. I love everything about this. <laughs> yeah. This week on The Magnificast, we have Brett O'Shea joining us. You probably know Brett if you're on the internet and on the left, I guess. <laughs> a person who needs no introduction, I think. But nevertheless, uh, Brett, we knew of, first of all, for hosting the show Rev Left Radio, which he still hosts, uh, among doing lots of other things now. We'll let you say more about that in a minute, Brett. Uh, we were on an episode of Rev Left a long time ago talking about Christianity. Brett's been on this podcast a long time ago talking about net neutrality, which feels like a thousand years ago. Uh, but we're really, really happy to uh, have Brett back uh, this time to talk about James Connolly, the famous uh, Irish revolutionary worker uh, and religion. Um, thanks again for being on the show, Brett. I know a lot of listeners know who you are, but could you give us a quick intro yourself? Tell us a bit about who you are, what you do, etc. Sure, yeah. Well, first of all, having been on the show to talk about net neutrality, it really does remind me that those were simpler times when that was the issue of the day compared to what we're <laughs> dealing with now in the middle of a global pandemic. But yeah, my name is Brett O'Shea. I'm the host of, of Revolutionary Left Radio, the co-host of Red Menace podcast, which basically does deeper dives into theory. We, we read political texts on the communist left and we you know explain them and then we try to apply them to our conditions. And then yeah, just organizing as well here in Omaha uh, with a few different organizations like uh, Nebraska Left Coalition, the SRA, 
uh, etc. So, so yeah, doing as much as I can for sure. Yeah, well, it's great work. Um, Dean and I are huge Rev Left fans. I've got my big Rev Left hoodie on and uh, fan fanboying out a little bit over here, but that's cool. Um, yeah, when Dean and I talked about uh, doing an episode on James Connolly, Dean immediately said, "Oh, we got to have Brett on because that's his guy." Um, so maybe could you say a little bit about what your interest in James Connolly is and why you're so, I don't know, attracted or interested in him as a figure? So I think there's probably three big points of interest when it comes to James Connolly for me. First is my uh, Irish heritage. My ancestral name, Moshe, sort of gives that away. But my dad was adopted, and his dad was the Irish immigrant that gave us the name O'Shea, and my dad was adopted, our last name changed, and we were cut off from that side of the family. So as a young child growing up, you know, especially in your teens when you're trying to find an identity, for one reason or another, um, my sort of lost Irish identity became a, a little object of fascination for me as I was growing up. And so I've always had this close relationship to it, have been interested in the history of the people, etc. I don't know exactly what psychological motivation uh, caused me to get that into it at such a young age, but it's been there. And perhaps the fact that I'm t uh, totally cut off from it and have nobody in my family that I can talk to and learn about that side of my family, maybe that adds to it. But th that's an initial sort of interest with any big Irish figure. And then secondly, I just really love James Connolly as a man, as, as a human being. You know, he was somebody who was born into poverty. He was working class his entire life. In fact, his life sort of has interesting parallels with like Karl Marx and uh, just how much they they sort of struggled. They had they were family men trying to do the good work of of building socialism and organizing people on very little uh, money. Whereas Marx might have had angles to help uh, help him afford some things. Uh, he, uh, Connolly never had that. So Connolly really lived and died um, a pretty poor person. Um, but he was what Gramsci would call an organic intellectual, truly from the working class um, in every way, the, the lowest depths of the working class, and was a leader of the working class and died fighting for it. He was somebody that, the, the sort of people that I really look up to in history, um, and even just between friends and comrades in the present, are people who are selfless, who don't have big egos who are always willing to put other people and the cause of something bigger than themselves ahead of themselves. And Connolly was very much that sort of, of man. You know, he would, um, there's a story like on his days off uh, after like, you know, long work week, you have one day off a week. Um, he would stay in bed all day pretending to sleep just so that his family didn't have to make him a plate of food at, at, at lunch or whatever at dinner time, um, so that his family could eat more, right? So that's just a tiny little anecdote, but it is really revealing about the sort of person he was. And then he was a great father. I'm, I'm a father with two kids, and anytime there's a socialist figure in history who has a close relationship with his kids, it's something that I can at least very quickly and easily relate to. So that that's, that's point two. And then finally, just his contributions to Marxism and anti-imperialism, not only as a as a thinker and a theorist and an um, uh, an intellectual, you know, but also as as an activist, as an organizer, as a doer, and ultimately, as we'll find out later on, as a martyr. Um, so, so those are the three big things that really piqued my interest in Connolly initially and got me interested in this entire history. I love that. That's such a great way in giving us sort of a character sketch of who Connolly is as a person or a personality, kind of a larger than life guy in some ways, but also just a, a good dad. That's a nice way to uh, get Connolly out on the table here. Um, could you give us a little bit more of an overview of Connolly's life? Maybe I'll ask you to expand on what you just ended talking about, bringing in some of that 
activism piece or why he's important in the history or memory of the left. So give us maybe some greatest hits. How would you explain Connolly to someone who's maybe not familiar with the U.S. left or international socialism? And then, of course, the the history of Ireland. Uh, he's a guy who, who got around, to say the least. So, uh, yeah, give us maybe some some bullet points. OK, yeah, he was he was born, as I said, into poverty and he was born to poor Irish peasants who were actually immigrants in Scotland at the time looking for work. And they lived in an infamous sort of ghetto called Cowgate, um, also known as Little Ireland, because that's where the Irish refugees and immigrants would would be in. And it was just really the the extremes of of poverty and deprivation. His father's job literally was to uh, ship manure around, like on a cart, move manure, human and animal uh, feces. And then eventually he rose to the ranks of being the manager of a public um, bathroom. So that is about as high as his father ever got on the social ladder. And as I said in that previous, um, or at least I alluded to in the previous question, he had to quit school at age 10 to start working to help his family. And of course, quitting school and going into work, we're talking like manual labor jobs, very difficult jobs. And so his school um, education really ended at age 10. And we'll we'll learn later how he was really self-taught and he had to teach himself um, what schools didn't because he had to quit and go work. And then at age 14, he, as many young men in his sort of class position had to do, at 14, he lied about his age to join the British military. Because at least with the British military, you'd get food and, and a place to sleep every night. And so he was engaged as a member of the British military, ironically, which would be the, the very same military that ultimately ended his life. Um, but he joined it at a very young age just to sort of get ahead in life a little bit. Um, he had some foundational experiences that he would come to hate the British Empire and the British military for the rest of his life, partly due to some of the experiences he had as a member in the army, uh, in the British military. But when his regiment was going to be transferred to India, he deserted. So he went basically AWOL and left the British military. But he did meet his wife at this time because he was posted up, you know, he was born to Irish parents, but they lived in Scotland. He went into the British military and then got sent to Ireland um, to, to whatever, for whatever reason. And that's where he met his wife for the first time. Um, so after he deserted, him and his wife continued to develop a relationship and they would be lifelong partners and, you know, a married couple until uh, the end of his days. He was an organizer his entire life. I, I would, t- it would take too long to talk about all the organizations he was in, but he, he founded or <laughs> co-founded things like the Irish Socialist Republican Party. He was a founding editor of the Socialist Newspaper, co-founder of the Socialist Labor Party in the UK, and co-founder of the Irish Citizen Army, which was a, a sort of militia put together by the working class in Ireland to protect workers and strikers from violent retaliation by reactionaries in the state whenever they went on strike, etc. Um, it was formed in the wake of a big lockout strike where um, several workers were, were shot down by the by the army uh, and the police forces. So that that that's important because that Irish citizen army would, would later uh, turn into one of the major forces in the uprising, the Easter Rising. But he went on, um, interestingly, I thought this was interesting. He went on a five-month speaking tour in the United States. He was sort of gaining, you know, some clout in, in Ireland and Scotland as an organizer, as a rabble-rouser, um, as somebody who could put, you know, sort of the complex ideas of socialism into very relatable terms. And so some socialists over in the U.S. paid for Connolly to come over and do a five-month speaking tour, um, really centered on trying to help convince Irish immigrants 
uh, that socialism and their Catholicism were not at odds, right? Because um, the Irish immigrants were very suspicious of socialism in the U.S., specifically because it was presented as an atheistic movement, and they felt that it was antithetical to their relationship with the Catholic Church. And so Connolly was brought over, really, to, among other things, to help um, Irish immigrant workers see that socialism and their religion were not at odds. And while he was in America, he became a member of both the Socialist Party of America, who people who might know Eugene Debs, he was a, a famous leader of the Socialist Party of America, and he was a member of the IWW. And as I said earlier, he was self-taught. Um, after dropping out at age 10, you know, he grew up with very little education, had to teach himself so much. And when he came over to America and he was working in factories to try to get by, he would, you know, think of America at the turn of the, of the um, 20th century you're in these factories with a bunch of different immigrants and a bunch of different languages. And in order to communicate with other workers, he had to teach himself um, languages like German and Italian. So not only was he self-taught just generally, but he also became multilingual through his own efforts simply he could, so he could communicate more effectively with his fellow immigrants in American factories. He was an early Marxist feminist. So he was huge in uh, pushing for the early Irish Socialist Republican Party to have women's um, emancipation and education in their platform, in their like sort of 10 points presentation. And he got the uh, addition of Irish women in the proclamation, which we'll get to later when the when the Easter Rising was was proclaimed, they wrote up this proclamation, and it was originally like Irishmen, and then it went into the whole thing, and he got in Irish women. It might seem like a small thing, but thinking of a, a man of his time and in his cultural conditions, um, just being you know dedicated from day one to the emancipation of women is is pretty ahead of his time and pretty admirable for sure. And then he went on to become, and we'll get more into this, I think, but the, the sort of commander-in-chief of the Easter Uprising in 1916, and he was ultimately, um, after that was put down, he was ultimately executed. So he uh, died at the age of 47, 48, I can't remember exactly. He died as, as a martyr for the, uh, for the socialist cause. Yeah, that's some really helpful framing um, that'll help us kind of understand the larger picture here. But uh, before we move on, maybe one more bit of framing. Um, when people think about, uh, you know, Ireland and revolutionary politics, the first thing they think about is usually, you know, the IRA and people like Bobby Sands and the hunger strikes and so on. Uh, but Connolly came way before Sands. So could you help us place him historically and explain his connection with the maybe more contemporary IRA that many are familiar with? Absolutely. So when we talk about the contemporary IRA, you're really thinking of the sort of splits that really resulted in the IRA that we know the provisional IRA in like late 60s, early 70s. You know, you think of the troubles and um, Bobby Sands and the, the hunger strikes of the IRA through the 70s, 80s, 90s. Um, so that's that movement. And a lot of people really go there when they think IRA. Connolly um, was born in 1868 and died in the Easter Uprising of 1916. So there's a roughly about a 50-year gap between when Connolly died to when the IRA as we know it today sort of rose. But again, that is a gap that was not completely a vacuum. There were many intermediate organizations descended directly from the organizations involved in the uprising and involved in, um, or Connolly organized and, and in some cases co-founded organizations that would later evolve into what we now know as the IRA. But I kind of think of it this way. Connolly, James Connolly was to the to the IRA of Bobby Sands, to that era of the IRA, he was to that what Malcolm X was to the Black Panther Party, 
right? Malcolm X was not a member of the Black Panther Party. Malcolm X was assassinated a few years before the rise of the Black Panther Party. But what Malcolm X stood for, the movement that Malcolm X helped found and give momentum to, this idea of, you know, black is beautiful, of standing up for yourself, of not being ashamed to be black, um, and so much else, right? Self-determination, all of that was really fortified into what became the Black Panther Party. And the leading founders of the Black Panther Party, like Huey Newton and Bobby Seale, were directly inspired by Malcolm X. So Connolly was to the IRA kind of what Malcolm X was to the Black Panther Party, a sort of uh, intellectual, ideological, and political forefather of sorts, you know? Um, Connolly was absolutely the crucial figure in combining the general feeling of Irish nationalism. This, I mean, you got to think the Irish were oppressed by the British for centuries and centuries, going back to, I think, the 1100s, if not even before that. So this, this oppression of the Irish people by the British Empire was, was nothing new. But Connolly was really crucial in combining that fight for Irish independence and Irish nationalism with Marxist class analysis. And Connolly was, was huge in saying, you know, Irish nationalism by itself isn't enough. You know, if, if we just get rid of the British, but the same class system um, exists, well, then the poor and the working class are still going to be exploited by their boss, by their landlord, beaten by the police. It'll just be Irish landlords and Irish bosses and Irish police, as opposed to proxies for the British Empire. And so he really understood that in order to make Ireland a country for all its people that took care of all its people and that was egalitarian. It needed this Marxist class analysis and this really idea of a sort of a proto-Leninist idea of a, of a Marxist state. You know, they call it the Irish Republic. Um, they wanted a state that served the needs of the people, that was democratically owned and operated by the people and did not have the class structures of capitalism within it. Um, so that is sort of the, the, the timeline a little bit. And I'll just go a little bit deeper just to make it a, a little clear, I guess. Um, I, I think the, the very forces that James Connolly helped found and lead in the Easter Rising of 1916 were the antecedents, as I said, for the creation of the IRA later, which, um, which the IRA right after the, the Rising, the IRA um, popped up in 1919. It's called the old IRA now, but it was the first organization in Ireland calling itself the Irish Republican Army, and that fought the War of Independence against the British Empire um, from 1919 to like uh, 1921. Um, and so that was like the first instantiation of the name, and it was directly a result of the rising. And then that name, the Irish Republican Army, went through a series of splits, of treaties, of negotiations over the next 50 years, and eventually culminated into the IRA that, that we think of today. So I hope that sort of uh, helps people sort of link up the timeline. You know, you can think of the Easter Rising and Connolly ending in 1916, and then the IRA fighting in the 60s, 70s, 80s, and 90s. Yeah, thanks, Brett. I think that helps a lot, uh, especially in the Medieval Cast. We're kind of always interested in finding all these weird uh, links between folks who get maybe uh, buried under under history for one reason or another, or kind of it isn't immediately clear how they uh, tie in today. So that's a great bridge that you've built. Um, so one more stage setting, historical stage setting piece. You've been talking about the Easter Rising. It was Easter this past weekend. 
both of our podcasts did episodes on the Easter Rising, I don't know, maybe two years ago or something. Uh, so maybe people want to listen to those to get uh, more detail. But Connolly was directly involved in that, as you said. Um, can you explain a little bit about what that uprising was, how it plays into Connolly's life as the kind of, you know, an ending moment, uh, more or less? And um, yeah, just maybe we could sort of use that as a way of closing off the, the basic historical stage setting. Yeah, absolutely. So the the uh, Easter Rising of, of 1916 was really only a five-day event, but it was an armed insurrection by a coalition of, of people and organizations, not all of them explicitly socialist, but led sort of in, in a real interesting way by Connolly and a few others um, like Pierce and, and Collins and others. But Connolly was a, an absolute essential piece of the puzzle. He, he led the uh, what became known as the Dublin Brigade, which made him, because Dublin was the center of the rising, the sort of de facto commander-in-chief of this armed insurrection. And it was an armed insurrection with the explicit goal of kicking the British imperialists out of Ireland and forming a new Irish Republic based on, hopefully, um, socialist ideals and, and you know, socialist values. Um, and what, what they were thinking of is, this is in 1916, so World War I is already underway. Um, the British Empire is immersed in World War I, you know, fighting on multiple fronts uh, in that war. And they saw this time as a moment where the British forces being spread across the globe and engaged in other battles were sort of weak and, and they couldn't really cover their backyard as strongly as they might have in a non you know, World War One situation. So they really took advantage of that fact. And again, I, I want to iterate that this is not just, we just want the British out because we don't like the British and we just are nationalists or something for its own sake. This is centuries and centuries of brutal domination of Irish people being second-class citizens in their own country of wanton assassinations and executions of any Irish rebellions, um, anything that, that the Irish people did to try to just gain basic human dignity and basic democracy um, for themselves in their own country was, was, was treated brutally and crushed um, brutally by the, by the British imperialists. So this is a, um, a, a battle that's been going on for centuries. There had been multiple uprisings throughout those centuries of the Irish against the British imperialists that have been put down over and over again. So this is really another one in a long history of, of, of attempts to kick the English out of, out of Ireland. And so on the day, um, I think it was April, let's say, I think it was 24th, they, they took advantage of England being immersed in the war and they took over strategic buildings throughout Dublin. They occupied them with the Irish forces and they proclaimed a, a new independent Irish Republic. Connolly was one of the seven signatories on the proclamation, and he was, as I said, the, the commandant of the Dublin Brigade, um, de facto commander-in-chief of the Rising. And they basically took over strategic buildings, and they said, we are now declaring the Irish Republic. Brits, get out. <laughs> um, of course, the Brits were not just going to get out. Um, even with the, their forces spread around, the, around uh, Europe for World War I, they still were able to marshal a huge force to come against uh, what really amounts to um, a small guerrilla warfare force, right? It was more of a militia than a disciplined army. Um, they had some military veterans that joined their cause and could help train some soldiers, but it was, a, it was really a regular Irish working people coming together and really giving this a shot. Like, we're, we're going to do this. We're going to kick them out. Or we're going to die trying. Um, so the Brits surrounded the rebels. They sort of um, were engaged over several days, you know, firefights, sniping, all that stuff. They brought a gunboat in. 
and really once they figured out where the the main spots or the main buildings that were occupied by the by the Irish the British started shelling uh, the city um, and I think the, the the highest sort of casualties were civilians uh, because the the British were really just blowing entire buildings and blocks up um, indiscriminately to, to to defeat the rebels and Connolly early on, was shot by a sniper. Some people say it was a direct shot by a sniper. Others say it was a ricochet. But in any case, it shattered his ankle. But even with his ankle out, um, he was removed out of the line of fire and he continued to sort of command the forces. Um, and five days later, on April 29th, they were just overwhelmed. The, the Brits destroyed the um, Dublin. They blew up buildings. Irish, innocent Irish people, men, women, and children were being slaughtered. And the, the rebels knew that they just had to basically agree to a surrender. There was no way out of this mess except for more innocent Irish people to die. So they, they offered their um, you know sort of unconditional surrender on April 29th. The leaders of the movement were all tried and quickly convicted and sentenced to be executed. Um, Connolly was, like I said, very badly injured. It wasn't just his ankle. Um, I don't think he had proper medical treatment when he got the initial wound. So the, the doctors that were taking care of him in prison really said he had a few days to live even without being executed. He wasn't doing well. Um, but they, the Brits still, and this really you know, sort of pissed people off, um, they killed a bunch of people and then it was Connolly's turn. So they they had to gurney him in. They had to put him on a stretcher to get him to the place where they're going to execute him. That's how sort of injured he was. And um, because he couldn't stand of his own accord, they tied him to a chair. Um, and, you know, they were going to execute him tied to a chair. Um, the, the doctor who had been treating Connolly... He said, and he, he, he'd known Connolly very closely because he was, you know, tending to his wounds. And even though he was a British doctor, he was still, like, if you met Connolly, you couldn't be against him. Like, he was very likable. And so the guy liked him. And he recorded what happened that day. And he said that when Connolly was sitting on his chair, he gripped the sides of his chair. He put his head up high, his, puffed his chest out, stared his executioners in the eye, and waited for the volley. And sure enough, it came. And they... They shot him multiple times and and killed him right there in, in his chair. Um, and, you know, his execution created outrage, not only among the Irish people, but even regular people in, in England were outraged. People around the world were outraged. The Ameri the New York Times, it was on the front, the Easter uprising and, and all the events taken, uh, taken around it were on the front pages of the New York Times for, I think, 14 days straight. So this was not just an event, you know, confined to Ireland and, and Great Britain. It was really a globally acknowledged event. Um, Lenin was a huge defender of, of Connolly after it happened. I think Connolly, when, when, um, when the whole thing was coming to an end in, in his last days, he said that the socialists won't understand what I did here because they won't understand that I'm an Irishman. They won't understand that even though the odds were stacked against us, they don't understand Irish history enough to know why we took this fight and, and took this dramatic action. But after it all happened, Lenin was actually one of the people that, that was defending Connolly, and that's where Lenin's quote that says, um, if, if you're waiting for a pure social revolution, you'll be waiting all your life. And he was responding to other socialists throughout continental Europe who were sort of critis critical of the, of the uprising and of, of Connolly. So it's kind of just an interesting historical note that Lenin was one of uh, Connolly's main, if, if few, defenders in the rest of the international uh, socialist movement. And because there was such outrage after Connolly was executed, 
because, I mean, people saw it as executing a very injured man, right? It's one thing to execute a soldier who can stand up against a wall. It's another to stretcher a guy out, tie him to a chair, and blow his brains out. So people were really sort of horrified. And because of that, the British government ceased all other executions. And there were about a hundred other um, Irish rebels that were to be um, executed. And Connolly's death, his last act, really, um, unbeknownst to him, was to to save those other hundred or so Irish rebels because of the outrage and the end of the execution. So Connolly was the last one uh, to be executed on that day, April 29th. Oh my God, what a story! And that's not even that's not even the half of it. I mean, like his last. I just really quickly, I guess, his last um, day. Uh, his wife and his daughter were allowed to to come in and basically say their goodbyes to him. And uh, I, I know you guys did an episode on it in in our episode on the Easter Rising. If anybody wants to hear more about this entire event. We play a clip of um, Connolly's daughter, who was there that day, and she recounts the conversation between Connolly and his beloved wife, Lily, and it's heart-wrenching. You can't listen to that clip and not walk away with tears streaming down your eyes. So until, until the very last second, uh, this was a man who loved his family, loved his country, loved working people, and, and was willing to, to die to try to make a better world for them. I think it's really important that um, that we we tell that kind of story about Connolly because um, you know sometimes on our podcast we talk a lot about philosophy and theology and some like kind of high high minded topics or whatever. But with Connolly, you're getting the real deal. You know, he's a he's a guy that really threw down and invested his life in this uh, in in a struggle for socialism. And uh, yeah, I don't want to lose sight of that. So I think that's a helpful story to tell and retell forever. Um, but with that being said, uh, Connolly. Uh, did talk and write quite a bit about uh, Christianity, Catholicism and politics and how those things are sometimes at odds and how they're sometimes not. Um, we read a handful of things uh, that Connolly wrote about uh, on the topic of Christianity that we'll link in the show notes. Um, but something we found really interesting uh, reading Connolly is that his thoughts on religion and socialism are strategically the same as Lenin, um, meaning that like religion shouldn't really be a barrier for people uh, to fight for socialism. Uh, but at the same time, Connolly doesn't go out of his way to remind people that communists are atheists in the way that Lenin does. Uh, Lenin leans a little bit heavier on that. Um, so, I mean, given that, um, you know, you, you mentioned just a minute ago, Brett, that Lenin was a, a defender of Connolly. Do you think there's a disagreement in their uh, their approach to religion here? So, I mean, there's room for disagreement here for sure. And I don't claim to be a complete expert on anything, but um, I don't necessarily think that there is a real disagreement here. What I think about is different conditions different histories and different cultures. Um, you know, Russia of that time was very different in, in very crucial ways than Ireland at that time. And um, I know a bit more about Irish history than I do about Russian history. And it's certainly true in Ireland that religion was sort of inseparable from politics. And it's almost trite to say that because we all can think even in America today, you know, religion and politics, they're very closely interwoven. But it's really hard to overstate just how crucial the Protestant versus Catholic divide was in, in that country and how linked it was to British imperialism, how rooted in Irish oppression that conflict was. And even to this very day, even throughout the entire existence of the IRA, that Catholic versus Protestant um, conflict really inflected and shaped the entire political struggle that revolved around it in a way that you know other countries don't necessarily have that deep of a religious entrenchment in, in their politics. So I think you really have to see Connolly applying Marxism to the specific conditions 
in Ireland. And, and if you think about it in that way of a Marxist thinker applying Marxism to their conditions, then there's no disagreement at all because that's what Lenin was so great at doing, right? Lenin took Marx and applied it to Russia and was able to launch the first ever successful proletarian revolution. No small feat for sure. Um, so, you know, it, it's it's an interesting thing. And when I think about the atheism and how much it was um, emphasized in, in communism, it comes out of a much different time. I mean, you can look back at Marx and Feuerbach and, and you know, Marx saying, uh, religion is the opium of the people. Of course, the full quote is, it's the heart of heartless conditions. It's the sigh of the oppressed creature, right? It's actually a very empathetic understanding of, of how religion might arise in certain depraved social conditions. Um, so that was really taken to a whole new level during the Cold War, where it became this sort of fight between two you know, monoliths. You had the the Christian West, capitalist Christian West, and you had the atheistic communists. And of course, in the West, playing up the atheism of the communists was a great sort of rhetorical tool in a country like America with, especially at that time, very heavy um, religious, religiosity broadly, right? The huge swaths of the population are religious on some level in a way that they even aren't to this very day. So I think a lot of that does sort of come out at that time. And then, of course, you know, Stalin takes it and it becomes a weird thing in Russia. I find that to really be sort of outdated. I understand why the political fight for socialism and the fight um, against sort of religious orthodoxy had to take place and had different inflections at different parts of, of the world at different times. But, you know, speaking for me personally, I don't really think that um, it's that important at all anymore. And in fact, I think emphasizing atheism in a socialist or communist movement actually works to our detriment. I think it's not only unhelpful, it's actively counterproductive. But I really liked Connolly's understanding of religion because he really emphasizes this, it's almost like, I, I, I'm struggling for words, but maybe like a religious, a, relig a pan-religious humanism or something. And I'm going to read this quote by Connolly that, that gets at what I'm trying to say here. And it really helps clarify Connolly's thinking, right? Uh, aside from the fact that, of course, he had to, um, if he's going to reach certain Irish people, he had to try to weave in their Catholicism and um, gesture towards Irish history to make the case to an average Irish worker that socialism is not antithetical to your history, to your culture, and to your religion. So rhetorically and strategically, that's one thing. But this quote is Connolly sort of talking about religion broadly, and it was in one of the, um, the readings that you sent me for this episode. And, and Connolly says, quote, the day has passed for patching up the capitalist system. It must go. And in the work of abolishing it, the Catholic and the Protestant, the Catholic and the Jew, the Catholic and the atheist, the Catholic and the Buddhist, the Catholic and the Muslim will cooperate together, knowing no rivalry but the rivalry of endeavor toward an end beneficial to all. For as we have said elsewhere, socialism is neither Protestant nor Catholic, neither Christian nor atheist, Buddhist, Muslim, nor Jew. It is only human. We of the socialist working class realize that as we suffer together, we must work together that we may enjoy together. We reject the firebrand of capitalist warfare and offer you the olive leaf of brotherhood and justice to and for all. So, end quote. And that, to me, really shows Connolly's respect for religion, but also his... Um, his insistence that it not be the thing that separates us. It not it doesn't need to be 
the focal point of, of ways to split and divide us. We can all have our religion. You can have the Buddhist and the, and the Muslim and the Jew and the Christian and the atheist, right? They can all still have their religious autonomy, but they can come together and cooperate for, for the sake of all of them, for all of humanity. And that, that sort of expansive, humanist, almost universalism, um, at least in this quote, I think really speaks to Connolly's overall views of the subject, which, which I find not only agreeable, but like, you know, downright inspiring. Like that, that's beautiful. And that should be the world that we aim for. Not a world where religion is purged in the name of some sort of scientific atheism, right? But a world in which everybody can continue their, their religious traditions and engage with the cosmos in the way that, that their culture and their history and their heart tells them to, but still be included in the socialist project. And I think, I think that's wonderful. Yeah, I also think it's wonderful. So we agree once again. Great job, Brett. Um, <laughs> uh, yeah, no, I, I love that quote as well. It comes at the end of a, a, a pamphlet or a polemic called Labor, Nationality, and Religion, uh, which is really fascinating because it's a polemic against a Jesuit priest who's arguing against socialism. Uh, lots of fascinating stuff in there, including at one point where he argues that the Jesuit priest is uh, somehow like arguing on behalf of Protestantism for some reason, which is very funny. It's like a very funny tongue-in-cheek paragraph. But anyway, <laughs> um, yeah, that so that's a great one. Uh, another one that we had read was uh, the Connolly and DeLeon controversy with uh, Daniel DeLeon, the famous uh, labor leader in the U.S. Um, and in that text, he's arguing uh, kind of against the, the opposite audience, I guess, uh, trying to make a case for why religion... Uh, matters, or at least shouldn't be kind of thrown out or or heavily polemicized against to a more kind of atheist audience. And it seems to me like Connolly is always fighting on two fronts when it comes to religion. On the one hand, he's fighting against leftists who dismiss religion or or are you know totally anti-religious for one reason or another. But he's also fighting against clericalism and with Christian complicity with capitalism or Christian supremacy. He's kind of always balancing these two opponents. Um, which I guess is kind of what we try to do on this podcast. So it makes sense to us because we are religious people <laughs> in the left. Um, but, you know, you, you were saying a little bit about this a moment ago, and I guess I, I would like to hear a bit more. Do you think that's a fight worth taking on for people who aren't religious, right? Like we, we resonate with that kind of dilemma that Connolly finds himself in because we find ourselves there too. But I'm curious to hear a little bit more about uh, how you find your own kind of way into that, uh, that position. Yeah, totally. I think um, with somebody like Connolly, he has the authority of being, you know, sincerely sort of religious and understanding the role that religion plays in Irish life. But he's also, and that gives him that, that authority and that sincerity to then go on to critique the church in very fascinating, interesting ways, showing how the power base of the, of the church at the time was really interwoven with and complicit in the crimes of capitalism. So while he can defend religion and, and show um, how beautiful it can be and how important of a role it plays in regular working people's lives, he can also be a sort of eagle-eyed uh, critic of the the church itself, some of the ideological uh, commitments of the church, and some of the ways that the church has actively um, operated against the interest of regular Irish working people. And you know, maybe an Irish Catholic listening to an atheist make those critiques of the church is one thing, but listening to one of your own make those critiques, it can hit a lot harder. And he does that, you know, sort of expertly. Um, but then generally, I just think of. The, the whole sort of idea 
of religion, and I'm certainly against um, leftists who dismiss it. It is really vulgar and crude, and it seems like they're just taking on something they've heard elsewhere in the past and trying to fit that that square peg into the round hole of the present, and it just doesn't really make any sense to me. There isn't the sort of material, at least not, I mean, I'm sure in some societies this is different, but in our society, there's not that that huge material um, distinction to be made where a fight for socialism also o- like o- almost immediately means a fight against religion. That doesn't, doesn't make any sense at all in our conditions, in my opinion. And then I also just look to people that were motivated by religion to join in fights against injustice. I immediately think of people like MLK and Malcolm X, who were both deeply religious men in two totally different religions, who, you know, eventually came to challenge the status quo of their own religious affiliations and really use their religion to fight against the depravity of not only capitalism, but racism and other forms of injustice. John Brown is another example way back of a, of a man really motivated by a deep religious impulse to fight against slavery and to give his life uh, as a white man in the fight against slavery, motivated almost entirely, it seems, if you read him, by his religious faith. And so any leftist that tries to purge that element of our movement, I mean, you can even think about liberation theology broadly. I mean, that would just be you know, like cutting off a, a right leg and trying to run a race. It's like this is an important pillar of not only political life, but just human life. Humans are, in some sense, sort of religious creatures, and that might depend on on your definition of religious, but I do think there's an impulse in all of us um, that, that can be called something like a religious impulse. And when it's not directed specifically or explicitly at religion, it can be directed in other a- aspects of life, sometimes in a healthy way, sometimes in an unhealthy way. Um, I'm somebody who uh, would self-identify sort of as an agnostic, maybe even an atheist, um, not a new atheist type, but certainly somebody who is skeptical, at least, of the existence of a supernatural realm or of a god. But at the same time, I also consider myself a deeply sort of religious man. Um, depending, again, on your definition of religious, I've practiced uh, meditation and engaged with Buddhism for my entire adult life, very intensely and deeply. Um, a daily practice of engaging with meditation and the Buddhist worldview has shaped my worldview uh, incredibly. It's a huge, huge part of my life. And so um, I think a lot of, you know, new atheists, that, that sort of person has a religious impulse in them, but they refuse to acknowledge it as such. And it's funny, it's almost ironic that there can sort of be a sort of religious impulse turned into a sectarian impulse against religion itself. And, and that can become sort of an ironic uh, dead end in its own right. But but yeah, I mean, overall, I, I think that if the left broadly, the, the so- socialist communist left is going to create a better world, not just an individual revolution in this country or that country, but really transform the world to the next phase of human existence, I think we're going to have to unite people across different religions based on our common interests, not further divide people by saying you have to fit into this non-religious box in order to participate in our project. It just seems completely irrational <laughs> to me to, to make that move. It's, as I said earlier, actively a, a hindrance to our movement. So, um, yeah, I, I, I think it's absolutely a, a fight worth taking on because it is true, and I'm sure, and I know for a fact, uh, you both would admit it. I see you on Twitter going against um, people, religious Christians, uh, who are reactionaries in various ways. So I know there is very much a fight that needs to be had within 
religion itself, within the different religions itself, between the revolutionary or progressive elements and the reactionary elements. Um, but that's true of society broadly and of politics broadly. And so, of course, that pol political conflict manifests itself within religions. Um, but, you know, our job, I think, as communists is to help the, those that are engaged in those conflicts on the right side, like you all, um, to help in that fight, not to dismiss you know, religious socialists because they're religious. That That's just absurd. Yeah, I think that's a good way of putting it. Um, a phrase that you kind of used a few times here that I'm that I like that I'm interested in is, is you know, you're saying that there's a religious impulse or that, you know, uh, there's a religious impulse that people have. And, uh, you know, it might depend on what you think of religion is, though. I think that's a really I think it's a really good idea or a really good way to think about it, because, um yeah, I don't know. Socialism seems like it has a type of re religious impulse in it or some maybe a, a spiritual impulse in it. Um, you know, like the 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 belief in uh, a type of humanism or the equality of all people or um, standing in solidarity with people and struggling alongside others for justice seems to have a pretty spiritual di dimension to it. I, I don't know. What do you think about that? Do you think that's the right way to put it? Is spiritual the wrong word? Um, I, I don't know. What, what do you think? So, so, I mean, yeah, I think the term spiritual is always going to be a loaded term and people are going to interpret it vastly different. It's one of those words that have like a million definitions depending on, on who you ask. But just generally, sort of in good faith, the the idea of something spiritual to the fight for um, justice, socialism, whatever you want to call it, I think there is something there. There's a spiritual thirst for communion, uh, for solidarity, for connection, not just between people, but between oneself and nature, right? This this need that is really politicized in the socialist communist movement, fight for a better world. But in that fight, we're also fighting for certain values that can very much be described as spiritual in, in that way. I certainly feel something like a spiritual affect or a spiritual dimension to my political work. I mean, few things can get me so sort of worked up, like bring a t bring tears to my eyes, can make me feel deeply connected to other human beings, even total strangers, then my sort of political outlook. But my political outlook is sort of put on top of that already existing need for connection and that already um, existing feeling of deep empathetic compassion for other human beings and seeing other people as myself. Um, that is certainly true. And you know, like when there's really people on the socialist communist left We've all we all know plenty of them. I mean, the best, most principled people who really, you know, put the cause ahead of themselves and and fight and are sincere. They're almost always motivated out of a out of a repulsion at seeing other human beings, sometimes even other animal beings, being hurt, being tortured, being deprived of basic dignity and decency. And that fight, it 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 blurs the lines between politics and spirituality or a religious impulse. Because there is something that motivates us to get involved in politics that is above and beyond just the political project itself. It's not like socialists want to build communism just because we've decided that that's the political form that we personally like the best. We choose it because we believe that that's the political form that can lead to the liberation and emancipation of the most people from all forms um, of oppression and domination and exploitation. So that initial urge to want to help people that you don't know will never know and and really build a world for people to enjoy even when you're gone. Um, I struggle to find a word for that if it's not something like spiritual or religious. Um, 
Uh, there's something deep and profound and moving and fulfilling about this political struggle for equality and, jo- and justice that, that sort of expands beyond the bounds of just politics itself. And it's again, I think language sort of breaks down here. It's sort of hard to parse these terms in a really concrete way. Um, but I don't think that using the word spiritual is wrong. And if, if you've ever been uh, in a huge protest, let's say one that is... Uh, confronted by the the forces of the state, a huge police presence or um, a a huge fascist or reactionary presence, and you're standing on one side of the street with with people that are believing and standing up for what you believe in, and you're looking across the street at people with, you know, batons and and guns and, and body armor, and you are, you lose yourself. There's something where the, the, the sense of individual self goes away and the power of of a people's movement of of collectivity sort of uh, drenches you and 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 it it can only be described as sort of spiritual i've been in these protests in these situations where all of a sudden tears will start falling down my face and it's not because anything has happened to me it's just because i sort of lose myself in the fact that all these people are coming together to stand up to people much better funded and much better armed than ourselves but we're standing up for something that we believe in so deeply, which is to make life better for other people. And, and that is a profoundly spiritual thing, I think. Uh, it's really fun to listen to you talk about that, Brett, uh, just because so much of the, the way that you describe it, like if you interchange this or that term, would sound like talking to like some charismatic Christians that I know or something, which is really <laughs> fun. Um, the, uh, the religion studies person in, that lives inside of me is like very intrigued and wants to ask a thousand other questions, but I won't. Uh, I'll ask a question that brings us back to Connolly, but not exactly away from this. Um, this might be kind of a personal question, but I, I'm really curious if you're willing to answer it. Um, giving your interest in your own Irish background, like you said at the top of the show, and Connolly's life, I'm, I just wonder what you make of the relationship between socialism and Catholicism in Connolly or in Irish radicalism. You know, we're a long way away from the early 20th century and even from the, the mid and, and now even increasingly the late 20th century. So is there anything for you as a person who's not Catholic, certainly, um, uh, but interested in these kinds of activating energies or, or whatever, however you want to put it, uh, is there anything for you there that you just find like really interesting or, or not accidental, I guess, you know, something essential to understanding Connolly that you really value about exploring his own thoughts about religion as a person figuring all this socialist stuff out? I really loved when, when he would try to make these connections um, between you know, I think he he made a, a connection between Protestantism and Catholicism, but there's an inverted logic there, where he was also sort of implicitly making a connection between Catholicism and socialism or communism, and what the connection there might be is in a capitalist society where people are are hyper atomized and individuated and left on their own. Um, there is something that the church brings to those people that can give them a sense of community, can give them a sense of belonging, can make them feel as if they're a part of something bigger than themselves in a world that says you are nothing but yourself and your consumer choices. Um, That will always be interesting and appealing to me. And I absolutely see the connections between the, the sort of world that we're fighting for in the best of socialism and communism and the sort of worldview encapsulated in the absolute best of religion this collectivity, this idea that we are all in it together, um, severing the the collectivity from its sectarian dimensions and just saying there's something beautiful about this 
life, about this world, and there's something beautiful in coming together with other human beings to make it easier for other people. And Catholicism and, and religion broadly, but especially Catholicism, I think, does have, you know, alongside its its long history of, of maybe terrible things and, and tragic things and horrifying things, also a wonderful history of charity, of taking care of people, of, of giving people that sense of community in context and social conditions where they've been deprived of it. And that, that is something that's, that's always going to be interesting to me and worthwhile and something that will ensure that I never dismiss religion in its entirety. You know, I was born in a non-really religious family, um, and as a teenager, I chose to join the Catholic Church. Um, as a, I think I was 13, 14 years old, I had some Catholic friends who I was very close with, you know, and I started getting very interested in, in Jesus and, and Catholicism. And I went to my parents, I said, I was in a public school at the time, I said, I want to go to a Catholic school, I want to be baptized, I want to be confirmed. And, you know, 13 year old Brett, not really even knowing what I was getting into. But my parents, they said yes, and they're, you know, low, low income people, they could not really afford the tuition for the, the local Catholic school, even though it was a working cl class Catholic school and tuition wasn't too terrible, but they went out of their way, worked overtime to ensure that I had that tuition to have that experience. And for four years of my life, middle school and the first two years of high school, I went to Catholic schools. I was baptized. I was confirmed. You know, Patrick is my confirmation name. It was a very interesting tie in my own identity between Catholicism and my Irish roots, like I, I went out and found Patrick for my confirmation name and studied that history and did a whole report on him. And that was an interesting thing looking back in retrospect that definitely had an impact on me. Growing up, even as I left Catholicism behind, um, I still have a soft spot in my heart for the imagery, <laughs> the aesthetics of, of Catholicism, the, the architecture for sure. Um, and then, of course, as I, as I matured politically, the entire strain of, of liberation theology became a huge source of inspiration for me. It was one of the um, important elements that broke down my, my little flirtation in my early 20s with new atheism and exposed it for just how sort of barren um, and decrepit that new atheism really was and has continued to be an inspiration for me. Even as a non-Catholic or non-religious, non-Christian person, I still turn to liberation theology as a, as a wonderful source of historical inspiration. And so I think on, on those different levels, there's always been something in me um, that's been attracted to it and something in me to this day that still references it and gestures towards it and finds beauty in it. I think that's a great explanation. Um, really well put. Um, well, do you want to uh, tell us what's up with Rev Left? Sure, yeah. I mean, Rev Left's still chugging along, um, trying to cover history, covering political philosophy, and covering organizing efforts. And then um, our other show, Red Menace, is really good for those that really want to take a deep dive and, and learn like the, the crucial texts from Marx, Engels, Lenin, Mao, etc. And you can find all of that at revolutionaryleftradio.com if you're so interested. That's great. Hey, thank you both so much for having me on. I want to have you guys back on Rev Left. This has been almost a three-year of friendship. I still wear my Magnificast shirt constantly. <laughs> like most pictures, <laughs> I'm wearing it. Um, and, and in wintertime, I have to sort of set it aside and not wear it so that I can wear it all the time in summer. So a uh, huge fan <laughs> of your show and always delighted to speak with both of you. Thanks for listening to The Magnificast. If you like what you heard, you can find us on Patreon to support us there at patreon.com slash The Magnificast. We're doing some current events podcasts there, too, so you can find some extra content if you're looking for some some of the hottest takes around. Uh, you can also find Brett and all the stuff he's doing at revolutionaryleftradio.com, and we encourage you to do so. Um, it's good. It's all good content. 
You can also find us on the internet on Twitter. We're at the Magnificast. We have a Facebook group called the Magnificast Basement that gets updated every once in a while. <laughs> Lots of good folks help us uh, create some good content there. You can email us at themagnificast.gmail.com. And we hope that you are still happy and healthy. All right. Our music, as always, is by Amari Armstrong. And our outro is by The Illogical Spoon. See you next week. I don't want to get up at church in the morning. Church in the morning. Souls alive. Heaven come to earth and there won't be no church. We'll meet down by the riverside. There we'll swim with all creation. Never get tired. Never bored. Don't worry. Someday there'll be no dam between us and our Lord. Jackson, keep your hoods up, you keep your hoods up, and you stay up late. Jackson, you keep your hoods up, well you keep your hoods up, and you stay up late. Oh, don't mind a cold night, but we might mind if you leave too soon. So come on now, it's still...